contract concerns, shopper tips, and purchase nightmares. This is Consumer Talk. As I mentioned earlier, Wendy Nola is not with us today, but she will be back next week. In the meantime, we're going to pick up on the conversation which arose last week around the implementation of the new sugar tax. A number of you called us and SMS pointing out that you were still seeing stores charging the same amount for a Coke and a Coke Zero, for example. And you wondered why that was, given that the tax on sugary drinks kicked in more than a month ago. If retailers aren't going to use it as it's intended, how is it ever going to work? What is going to happen to the money generated by that tax? And which products are actually meant to be affected? Well, to help us grapple with some of those questions, we've called on a legal expert from Cliff Decker Hofmeyer. And joining us from our Johannesburg studio is Jerome Brunk, who is a senior associate associate in their tax and exchange control practice. Jerome, thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome to the studio. Hi, Pippa. Thanks for having me on the show. Jerome is going to focus on the sugar tax and related questions in this first part of the show, but just a reminder that you're welcome to call in during the open line after 1.30 with broader questions around tax, be it corporate or personal tax, as well as trusts and estate planning and exchange control issues. Uh, the number to dial for any of your questions is 021-446-0567, or you can leave a voice note on 072 072- Five six seven one five six seven. Jerome, I think let's start with a brief recap on what is formerly known as the sugary beverages levy. Can you just sketch for us how it came into being? Yeah, sure, Pippa. So um, it sort of started around 2016 um, when Pravin Gornan, the then Minister of Finance, announced in the budget speech that they would be introduce- introducing what is sort of colloquially known as the sugar tax. Um, it went through a lengthy public consultation process. There were many stakeholders and, and, and engagements with National Treasury and the legislators. Um, about 144 different entities and, and NGOs submitted uh, submissions on this tax. So obviously a lot of controversiality around it. Um, ultimately, the bill was initially published last year. Um, there was then a further consultation process in Parliament um, raising some further issues, the National Treasury again um, answered some of those r- responses. One of the key uh, instances is that the rate was actually reduced slightly to what it was initially proposed. Um, and then ultimately it, the, the, the bill was um, promulgated um, and it's coming to effect now from 1 April 2018. Okay, let's talk about quantifying this levy because it's not a fixed amount that goes onto any product automatically. How is it actually calculated? Yeah, so um, as originally said, it was originally 2.29 cents per gram of sugar content. Um, that was then revised down to 2.1 cents per gram of the sugar content. Um, and again, another sort of um, thing that was that was given to the, the, the stakeholders that the first four grams per 100 mils are levy-free. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a calculation that, that needs to be done, and, it, and it's very much dependent on the exact sugar content um, per per beverage. Okay, so the first four grams per hundred mole free, thereafter a rate of 2.1 cents per gram of sugar. Does that refer only to sugars that have been added in artificially? What about products that have got intrinsic sugar based on the ingredients in those products? So yes, this is one of the pressure points during the, the public consultation process. Um, and it's actually, there's no distinction between added or intrinsic sugars. Um, I think it, you know, if, if, if that was ever going to be implemented, it would make it a lot more harder to administer and there'd be a lot more controversy surrounding mm. it. 
Um, and that was one of the reasons why they brought in this this four gram per hundred mil levy free to sort of maybe give you give you a little bit of a buffer in terms of your intrinsic sugars. Okay. Now, calculating that re- the level of sugar is obviously something that needs to be done by um, a facility which can do so without question and uh, can't be tempted into understating how much sugar is in there. Are there any regulations set down about how uh, who and who gets to, to declare the, the, the level of sugar in those drinks? Yeah, so there's a number of means and manners in terms of how that's regulated. Um, firstly, you need to, as a manufacturer who will be the per- the the entity that will be liable to pay over this tax, you need to get an accreditation from certain regulatory bodies um, to basically get a report certificate stating how much sugar is in your specific beverages, specific products. Um, to the extent that you don't do this, um, it's then a deemed amount, um, which is obviously on the on the higher side. So the incentive is for manufacturers to go through the proper process and get the proper uh, regulatory body sign-off and certificates. When you say on the higher side, it really is. They, they, they will assume that your level of sugar is 20 grams per 100 mils if you don't submit documentation to, 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 to declare it otherwise. That is correct. Okay. For those who've just joined us, my guest in our Joburg studio is Jerome Brink, who is a senior associate with Cliff Decker Hoffmeyer in their tax and exchange control practice, talking to us about the implementation of the sugar tax. Now, let's get down to the nitty gritty of how it actually works in practice, Jerome. Uh, um, a lot of listeners last week pointed out that although this tax came into effect on the 1st of April, when they walk into a shop, they still see Coke on sale next to Coke Zero at exactly the same price. Is there any requirement on retailers to, to implement the tax in their pricing structure? I think that's one of the issues um, is that there's not. So obviously the, the way that the tax is implemented is that it's collected at duty at source. So the manufacturers are the ones that are inherently liable to pay over this tax. Um, so if you've, let's say, created a contract with one of your retailers and, and the contract doesn't specifically state that the retailers need to cover this cost, um, potentially there might be a lag and the retailers might not be charging that amount. Um, in the long run, it's, it's likely that the retailers will probably have this cost pushed onto them from the manufacturers. And so there may be a bit of time to, to catch up in that sense. And that may be one of the reasons why you're not seeing it at the moment. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, in practice, in terms of collection of that tax, it came in on the 1st of April. Are all systems up and running? I mean, is that money already flowing into the fiscus? Yes, absolutely. Um, there, there was a lengthy process. SARS had a national roadshow, you know, uh, discussed with all the relevant stakeholders and and um, entities that needed to register. And so, yes, from the 1st of April, any manufactured goods um, that are liable to this sugar tax would have been collected and, and paid over. Okay. Sue asking on our uh, WhatsApp line whether it's uh, uh, applicable to imported products as well as those manufactured in South Africa. Yes, that is correct. So if it is an imported product, it will follow a roughly similar similar process. But instead of the tax being collected sort of in the South African local factory, it will be collected at the time that it's cleared for for customs purposes and comes into South Africa for uh, consumption. Okay. Now, Jerome, the million-dollar question here is whether the implementation of the tax is going to have the desired effect. I mean, the aim of imposing it in the first place was to try and curb South Africans' consumption of these products, that the consumer should walk in and go, gosh, the sugary version is much more expensive than the non-sugary version, so I'm going to choose the less sugary version and make the better health uh, choice um, as a kind of a, a side consequence of a financial decision. Do you think it's going to work? Yes, uh, a very difficult question, I guess. Um, 
the, the thing is, is that, look, I think the tax is one of the means and, and ways in terms of how you can um, change consumer use patterns. And essentially, it's just another version of, of a syntax, similar way to how tobacco has got syntaxes and, mm. and alcohol has syntaxes. And I mean, those have been in, in, in existence for a long period of time. And I guess people still use tobacco products and people still drink alcohol. Um, I guess the, the, the key issue is that it's not a silver bu- bullet solution. Um, it's, it's one of many solutions that the uh, government is trying to sort of promote health and, and, and as it's actually called a health promotion levy, um, and to try and change consumer use patterns. The, the, the other side to it is that then if let's say the, the consumer use, use pattern is changed, um, it's whether this then has an, an actual knock on effect in terms of, um, decrease in, in what they call non-communicable diseases such mm. as diabetes, obesity, and then therefore lifting the, the pressure on the, the health system, which is the ultimate aim in, in the long term. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can look to other countries which have already tried, tried this mechanism to see what success they had. I know Denmark, Ireland, France, Finland, Mexico are some of the examples. Um, and it's a kind of a mixed bag of results, isn't it? Can you talk to us a little bit about what we can learn from looking at global case studies? Yeah, I think one must be hesitant to be to place too much emphasis on the global studies. Uh, you know, every country has their own different socio-economic factors, and 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 other things that that play a role. Um, I think you mentioned Mexico, and and, and in their um, case, the first couple of years showed a massive decrease in the consumption of sugary beverages. Yeah. Um, but that may be, you know, uh, so other factors could also have played a role. For instance, you know, decrease in economy, economic factors, that kind of thing. So. I think it's, and again, another thing is that in the first couple of years, there may be an impact and people might sort of go back to using the, the sugar beverages after a while. As they say, old habits die hard. So mm. it may not have a long-term impact and it's sort of a, an immediate impact. Um, but yes, I think a lot of the other countries, it, it provides at least a, a base to look at and, and to see where things have gone wrong or gone right and to try and implement it in, in those ways. Okay. Is the money being ring-fenced ring at all? I mean, uh, so they pay over this tax, uh, the manufacturers do, uh, to the government. Is it going directly into the health budget or does it just go into the general fiscus? It goes into the general fiscus. Um, another one of the key points raised during the, the, the public consultation process. There, there are very few taxes that are actually ring-fenced and provided for a specific purpose. Um, and, and National Treasury and SARS are loath to sort of implement more taxes that that do a similar thing so it's going into the general budget but of course there are undertakings that there will be money pushed more money pushed towards um, the health department but but there's no specific ring fencing unfortunately okay um i don't uh, welcome calls on 0214460567 with your questions we've also got some coming in by voice note already a reminder that the number there is 0725671567 let's take a listen to a voice note Hi, Papa. I see that Coca-Cola recently changed the recipe on two of their products. I don't know if it's more of them. Um, on Fanta and Sprite, they're now using artificial sweeteners. Is there any provision made for them to put warning labels on their products based on the fact that there is evidence that artificial sweeteners cause a whole lot of neurological issues? Um, just wondering. Thanks for that voice note. Any comment on that, Jerome? Um, yeah, look, I think, you know, the, one must just be, the thing is, is that this is just a tax. It's, it's a, it's a beginning. It's a start. So there's going to be a lot of these sort of issues coming up and, and developing as we go along. 
Um, and so the legislation will obviously take time to, to catch up to, to these sort of developments. Um, at the moment, though, every uh, sugar beverage needs to have specific ingredients um, and, and labels. And to the extent that you don't, you then face certain sanctions. So the, 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 all the sugar beverage companies are encouraged to make sure that, that everything that's put in, the, in, a, in a can of soda is, is clearly marked. Um, and in that way, at least the consumer knows what they're drinking. Okay. Uh, some skeptics on our Twitter feed. Uh, Glenn saying the sugar tax has not made any difference in my circle of friends. Like the plastic bag levy, it won't be used for what it's intended for and will just be another tax burden on the public. Onati also tweeting, your guest admits some taxes never had the desired effect, but how then can sugar tax make you healthier? Making SA a nanny state is not going to work. Government is just desperate to get more tax and the economy has been bled almost dry. Uh, I know Unati and Glenn are not alone in feeling that sense of skepticism, that this is just another convenient excuse for eking another drop out of the taxpayer, Jerome. Yeah, I guess, you know, that's been the controversiality all along. Um, and I think, you know, I wasn't around then, but when, when, when sin taxes were originally introduced, tobacco and alcohol, I'm sure there were many people up in arms similarly. Um, it, it, like I said, it's not a silver bullet solution and you will have people that will continue to drink the, the beverages, but they will hopefully have an effect on, on some population. And I guess that's what National Treasury will sort of place emphasis on and, and state, you know, we are having some sort of effect. Um, and, and, you know, the percentages may be here or there, but, but there, there is an effect. I think when the studies were done as well, it's important to note that it was a lot of the studies suggested that there'd be a larger impact on the lower income levels um, where your price elasticity is a lot more sensitive. Um, and whereas at, at high income levels, um, the taxes and at that uh, sort of um, leviable rate, um, there wouldn't be as much of a greater impact. So it's just important to sort of analyze each situation. Okay, a question in from Gary on the email, wondering how the tax applies to things like uh, game powdered cool drink, for example. He says it isn't consumed in the concentration in which it's sold. So how do they calculate what taxes do? Yeah, so liquid and powder concentrates are included in the overall health promotion levy. Um, how they calculate it, of course, is that you they basically say how much of, of the game or, or the liquid concentrate would make um, in a normal, you know, the... the the manufacturer's instructions, and then they base it on on that. So it's not specifically just when it's in its powder form, but they actually sort of create it in, in the form where it would be um, drunk, and then they, they calculate it on that basis. Okay. Really interesting email in from Lucy, and I'd like you first to, to tell us whether she's right in the assumption that this question is based on. But she says, I can't understand why fruit juices are exempt from this tax. Some of them contain even more sugar than a fizzy soda in, to, in form of excess of fructose, which is really difficult for the liver to digest. Why should they not be taxed too? Is she right that fruit juices are exempt? She is right, um, and it's a good question. At this stage, um, the fruit, ju fruit juices are exempt, um, but you know National Treasury has, has indicated that um, it's certainly still on the table. Um, at this moment, this is where where they are at the moment, but it's it's not being cast aside completely, and they may review that situation in a couple of years and include fruit juices or maybe limited in some way. Um, again, if you look internationally, some countries have already introduced it on fruit juices, some haven't. So. Um, yes, a pressure point at the moment, um, but at the moment still still exempt. 
Okay, Lucy, thanks for uh, raising an important point there. And uh, I think it can't be overstated how important it is for parents in particular to read the labels of what they're feeding their kids because fruit juice is one of those where parents, I think many parents buy it thinking it's the healthier choice, but in effect it is not necessarily so. So, Lucy, thank you for raising a very valid point. Let's say hello to Steve who's given us a call from Pardon Good afternoon, Steve. Yes, hi, guys. I'm just wondering if somebody in the industry is uh, sort of taking figures of how many uh, Sugar drinks are sold against how many non-sugar drinks are sold compared to when it wasn't taxed to see if it actually is working. And if it isn't working, will they then discard the tax because it's not doing anything or keep charging it just to fill the banks up? Jerome, is somebody monitoring? Uh, I'm sure somebody must be, uh, but do you know who that is? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, ultimately, though, I think the, the, the companies that will have that sort of data will be the beverage companies. So... To the extent that it's not having an effect um, or to the extent that it is having an effect, I think they would probably either withhold or give that data. So it, it's an interesting question to see. Um, but unfortunately, the, the, the data holders may data holders may may want to or may not. Um, ultimately, though, there will likely be some sort of data coming out showing whether it's increasing or decreasing and some studies. And one assumes if everybody suddenly starts buying the cheaper sugar-free alternative, they will adjust their production patterns to meet that new demand. Absolutely. Which is the intended consequence, of course, but whether it happens or not, Steve and many others wondering. Uh, Stephen Pardon-Aylant, uh, does that answer? Yes, it does answer your question because he's left us. Okay, Steve, thanks for your call. Uh, a reminder that we're chatting to Jerome Brink of uh, Cliff Decker Hofmeyer. He is a senior associate in their tax and exchange control practice. We've been focused on the sugar tax quite strongly in this first half hour, but after the news headlines, we're happy to broaden the conversation. I'll still happily take questions on the sugar tax, but we'll also uh, take your questions and calls on other tax issues if you've got something you'd like to know about corporate tax personal tax trusts and estate planning as well as exchange controls you're welcome to dial in on 021-446-0567 cape talk consumer talk call us now on 021-446-0567 Wendy Nona is away this week and we'll be back next week. Uh, for uh, the interim, we are chatting to Jerome Brink, who is a senior associate at Cliff Decker Hoffmeyer in their tax and exchange control practice. We've been talking a lot about the implementation of the sugar tax on the 1st of April, but we're also happy to broaden the uh, conversation if you have uh, more general tax-related questions, including questions around exchange controls. Interesting email in from Fiona during the news there, Jerome. She says, I manufacture a very small quantity of artisanal lemonade, which which does include added sugar, which I sell at local flea markets. Do I have to register to pay sugar tax? Um, she's unlikely to to be liable. There's a threshold, so um, it's about the exact figure is about 500 kilograms of sugar along those lines. But there's a threshold, so only really commercial manufacturers are caught within this uh, sugar tax. So if you're a small, small, very small producer, you're unlikely to have the burden of of collecting and, and paying over the tax. Okay. Another quite complicated one, but this is a fair point, uh, regarding fermented drinks. This person on our SMS line says, 250 grams of sugar used to make kombucha, when it's finished fermenting, that sugar content drops to around 3 to 5 grams because the microbes consume sugar during the fermentation process. How will the tax be applied on a product like that? Um, I guess it would be on the, so basically once it's manufactured and ready to 
to to go out into the market the consumer um that will be the the stage that it's that it's actually tested to understand what the sugar content is so be it that it may originally have something higher it's likely that when it's ready for consumption and it's packaged and ready to go out um it'll be at that time and that's sort of the key time when when it will be uh, calculated Okay, uh, there was a follow-up SMS saying, I mean, uh, this, these rates are for three liters. So three, three to five grams per three liters in your kombucha should be well below um, the exempt zone. So you should be all right based on that calculation. Um, another SMS saying, my past observation is that beverage companies and all the supermarkets have always charged the same price for plain old soda water as they did for sugary drinks. I suppose that is a fair point. The question is, what are they going to start doing uh, once the, the impact of the sugar tax is felt? Um, any comment on the so-called mass job losses which were going to uh, happen as a result of this tax, Jerome? A few people asking about that. When it was first mooted, a lot of the beverage manufacturers were jumping up and down, shouting that there would be as many as 70,000 jobs lost in the industry. Uh, we were told that that wasn't uh, the case. Uh, the Treasury found that it was a much, much lower figure. Any comment? Yeah, obviously um, a lot of studies being done on that, um, and it's all sort of hypothetical, so... Um, and projections. I think Treasury would always be on the lower side and the beverage companies would try to be on the higher side in order to try and, and show that it's, it's not a, a good tax to implement. Um, again, it's very early to say. Um, and so we'll have to see how it goes um, along the lines. But again, the reduced rates um, and, and the, the small amount that's levy free uh, were introduced to try and offset some of these job losses. Um, so, yeah, it's, it remains to be seen as to how uh, that'll play out. Okay. One more WhatsApp on the sugar tax before we take our first uh, more general question. Uh, somebody asking, is the sugar tax purely on beverages or is a bag of sugar also going to be taxed? Uh, the follow-up comment is, I notice some people putting three or four teaspoons of sugar into their tea or coffee. So how does it help if they're still doing that? Very good question. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, a bag of sugar is not, not part of the sugar tax, and I think that's one of the big comments made, is that there's other sugar um, content, let's say sh- uh, sweets, chocolate, a lot of other um, food and, and beverages that has a very high sugar content, and they're not part of this whole uh, sugar tax. So, But, but I guess, again, um, the indication is that this will be reviewed and, and potentially extend to further um, sugar products, and I know in some countries they have actually done that as well. Um, Things like so your tomato that, sauce, for example. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we'll see what happens again. You know, the, the, at the moment it's limited to the to the beverages, but yes, yeah, certainly something that's in the the eye line. Okay, Adele asking an interesting question on the SMS line. She's noticed an increase in the price of artificial sweeteners, and she said, "Why would that be? Surely it's not the sugar tax. It's more likely to be the VAT increase, isn't it?" Yes, uh, it's unlikely to be if it's just an artificial sweetener in itself that the, the sugar tax has had an impact on that. Okay, thanks, Jerome. Uh, right, we're going to move into the open line segment, and Belinda is on the line from Cormacky with a question about IRP fives. Belinda, good afternoon. Hi there. Um, so my question is: I had a person in the system for five years. She's no longer working for me. Um, she's selling her property, and she wants me to um, generate IRP fives for her. She wasn't um, submitting tax returns. She wanted to. Um, you, you know, be invisible, I guess, to SARS. And I've got no idea how I generate a RP5. Is there any kind of template available for Belinda to use, uh, Jerome? Um, generally, your RP5s, um, you'd need to be registered as an employer with SARS um, and you complete the RP5s when you do your e-filing and you submit your EMP201s and your EMP501s. 
Um, to the extent, I'm not sure if the, if it's able to do manually. It's unlikely. I think you would need to be registered as an employer um, and, and have that sort of function on your e-filing. There's a specific program um, that enables you to actually issue these IRP5s. Okay. And e-filing doesn't enable that, or does it? Is must I register separately with e-filing because I was um, paying UIF? Yeah, if you were only paying UIF, then obviously you wouldn't have the function to issue your RP5. You would need to have been paying PAYE, UIF, and SDL potentially, um, and and that's uh, because the PAYE is essentially what is the main thing, which is main payroll taxes is going to be reflected on that RP5. So the key issue is that you were actually paying PAYE over. Okay, so does Belinda need to really find a tax consultant to help her through that process or go into a SARS office perhaps? Yeah, I think a SARS op- office or, or, or a tax practitioner would be able to assist. Um, again, she'd need to have a look if, if she was in fact uh, liable to register as an employer um, and that in itself is a question which she'll have to, to answer. Okay, Belinda, good luck to you. Thank you so much for your call. Happy to take a few more on 0214460567. Ah, gosh, we've had a lot of talk about Airbnb in the last few weeks, and somebody's emailed me asking you to give us a sense of the tax implications of registering a property on Airbnb. They're thinking of doing it as an additional income stream, but are worried about the tax implications. Yes, I guess... Just the fact that you register on Airbnb doesn't necessarily create tax. I guess if people start using your Airbnb, <laughs> then yeah, uh, you, you will be uh, you will be earning some income. And yes, it's likely that you will then have to sort of create a tax calculation. You will be getting certain money in every time someone stays at your place, and you can deduct expenses against that, um, such as cleaning services, for example. Um, and at the and, and and at the end of the year, you can then submit that in a separate portion of your income tax return. Okay, so you can deduct expenses, but emphatically you must declare that income when you submit your tax return. Absolutely. Uh, you'd be using the Airbnb basically as a trade, as a business, um, and so that therefore puts it in the, in the realm of taxation. Okay. Uh, Lizette on the email is planning to emigrate, and her question is, how do I transfer my funds out of South Africa, or do I need to maintain a South African account? Are there any other important de- details I need to consider? Yeah, so um, immigration is, is dealt with specifically from an exchange control point of view. Um, likely the best way to, to resolve the issue is to chat to her local bank, whichever bank account, uh, whichever bank she uh, utilizes, um, and, and explain to her them the situation in terms of um, what she intends to do. And they'll be able to advise her on, on all the options in terms of what she can take, what she may have to leave behind uh, in terms of assets, and, and ultimately you make a declaration um, and, and, and proceeding it, and you, and you go forward from there. Okay. Uh, right, Steve on the SMS line quite a while ago sent in a question about cryptocurrency, and I hope you're able to uh, provide some clarity here. His question is, is there any clarity from SARS on how to record and declare crypto activities? Yes, um, there's been a lot of talk about cryptocurrencies. Um, SARS was threatening to to issue a, an interpretation oath or something more formal. Um, unfortunately, they 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 withheld that and they decided to do something less formal. They they issued a media statement a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, um, regarding cryptocurrencies. And in their view, they believe that the there's no it's not necessary to bring in any specific taxation uh, legislation to to cover cryptocurrencies. And that the the current legislation is uh, adequately deals with it. Um, and again, the key issue is basically whether you are trading, and and then it would be income, 
um, or alternatively, if you're holding those cryptocurrencies as a as a long-term investment asset, such as let's say a Kruger Rand, um, and then will be held on capital accounts. So that's that's the very key question. Um, but yes, certainly something that that people should be aware of the fact that there is tax consequences to to trading or holding any cryptocurrencies. Okay. Cryptocurrencies. Okay, Steve, thanks for an interesting question. Um, difficult one here for Mrs. Johnson sending us an email uh, asking if you can please explain on taxation of a widow's salary and pension. Why does SARS lump the two together, pushing the widows into a higher tax bracket and hurting them financially? Not quite sure I understand fully. Do you? Um, it's it's difficult to, to ascertain without the, the full facts on that one. Um, but potentially the fact that, that she's now had um, a salary and pension that may not have been received previously and now that they are both being received, um, you, you calculate your, your marginal tax bracket on the, the aggregate amount. So it doesn't matter from which sources they're coming from, but as soon as you pushed into income that, that is received in your hands and you move from one tax bracket to the next, then you, you will be taxed at a higher rate. Okay, Mrs. Johnson, I hope that gives you some clarity. Thank you for your email. Uh, right, this is an anonymous question on our WhatsApp line, asking if you could explain what probate is and why everyone tries to avoid it so. Probate. That's yeah. a, a, I'm not entirely sure uh, the, the, what probate is, to be honest. I wonder if they've picked up something from uh, from uh, maybe misunderstanding something they've seen on TV or internationally, perhaps. Okay, let's leave it there. And, and seeing as it's not clear in the question, I'm not going to try and push you for an answer by any means. Rather move on to the next question, which comes from Ben. Wondering what types of property pass to your beneficiaries automatically through a will, or do you have to specify each and every item? Um, yeah, so more of a, a legal sort of question. Um I think it's it's ultimately much better to specify which properties go to to specific um, individuals. Um, to the extent that you don't do that, inevitably there's some contention afterwards, um, and and so yes, much better to 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 specify that. So have a wish list that that emphatically states individually which which item goes to which person. Absolutely, yep. always better. Um, otherwise, again, you know. If, you always uh, hope that there won't be any family disputes, but when these things arise, you know, inevitably there, there is. Okay. Let's go back to the lines. Paul has given us a, a call from Cape Town. Paul, good afternoon. Hello. How are you? Fine, thanks. And yourself? Fine, thank you. I have a quick question. Mm. Uh, if you're sitting on a board of directors and you are a non-executive director, what tax bracket do you sit under with your remuneration? Um, yeah, so essentially, it, if you're a non-executive director, there was a number of recent um, changes in the in in SARS's practice uh, um, of this, um, and there's a number and there's a lot of information on the SARS website regarding it. In terms of the tax bracket, well, I think it's a question you'll have to answer yourself in terms of how much you fees and and income you're actually earning from it, and that will ultimately depend on what uh, which tax bracket uh, you fall into. Oh, so you do have to pay taxes uh, based on your fee- your fees that you uh, receive from the board. Yeah. Uh, yes. Absolutely. 
Okay, Paul, thank you for your question. Uh, we can squeeze in one or two more calls, but you are going to have to dial quite fast on 021-446-0567. Otherwise, send an SMS to 31567. Um, oh, this is a really, really awful situation to be in. Anonymous asking, can an employee be held liable for PAYE if it was deducted from his salary, but the employer didn't pay it over to SARS? Yeah, it's 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 it is. It's a difficult question. Um, unfortunately, you sort of jointly and severally liable. So, to the extent that um, it hasn't been paid over to SARS, um, you will then likely have uh, will likely need to declare that that income um, and um, and pay tax on it. However. Um, the key issue is that the employer is also ultimately liable and you will have recourse against him um, to the extent that he hasn't uh, paid it over. Um, again, it's it's an important thing to make sure that um, you have all the records. So if you have any salaries, pay slips and, and, and RP5s, as previously mentioned, make sure you keep keep those and hold on to those um, to avoid any un, un, unintended consequences um, that may arise in this in this instance. Jerome, for how long should you keep documents like that? I mean, at what point can you go, I don't have to keep all this stuff because enough time has passed that it's no longer an issue that can be brought back against me? Yeah, the general rule is sort of five years um, is, is sort of a good, a decent amount of time to hold on to it. Uh, if you're worried about um, stacking up too much paper, you know, with, with technology these days, you can you can scan it in and keep it on a on a hard drive somewhere. The, the earlier years, so that in case anything does unintended happen thereafter, then you still have a, a fallback option. Okay, uh, Jerome, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and uh, sharing your insights with us, particularly on the issue of the sugar tax. Uh, we've really appreciated your input. Thank you very much, Pippa. Um, it's been great. Thank you. You've been listening to Jerome Brink, who is a senior associate at Cliff Decker Hoffmeyer, uh, in there specifically in the tax and exchange control practice. And just to end the consumer segment, let me share with you uh, this WhatsApp that just came through uh, from someone who says, I can't help feeling that this entire sugar tax exercise only benefits the government in more taxes and the consultants via contracts. If the intention was truly to promote health and decrease health expenses, then fruit juice and all sugary foods should be included. The focus should rather be on education so that more and more people come to connect the dots between sugar consumption and their own symptoms, as well as their pockets via medical expenses. And that is a very pertinent point. The education that makes people make those choices from an informed perspective of their knowledge of what they're putting into their bodies rather than a wallet-based perspective is really the long-term solution to the health problems associated with sugar. Thank you so much for that WhatsApp.